to get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, BBC Radio brings us to Donegal to explore Ireland's most infamous missing child case in Nobody Recovered. Then HBO wraps a murder mystery inside a supernatural thriller with their adaptation of Stephen King's The Outsider. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and podcast college professor, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. You're so professorial, Kevin. Do I look professorial? No, you're wearing a hoodie and a white t-shirt. But I have uh, corduroy patches on the <laughs> elbows of my well, We should tell hoodie. people you're actually teaching a class now in podcasting. It's very exciting. I, I am. I'm teaching an evening class at the, uh, the Loeb School of Communication. It's a little... Free. Can we call it a college class? I mean, it's. I, you called it a college <laughs> I class. I did. I did. It's a, a cooperative extension higher learning course. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a, adult ed. Exactly. <laughs> it's a free class. We've got you know about twenty people, and they want to learn about what podcasting is. And, yeah. You know, I think next time there might be a prerequisite about audio editing. <laughs> how to open your laptop. <laughs> So, <laughs> wow! But uh, yeah, but you it's love really your good. Students. Yeah, talking. Yeah, it's it's really great talking to people different ages and different interests, and mm. you know, it's it's a real spread of different people. It's been good for me. Nice. Also with us is journalist. It also destroys my voice. <laughs> what's left of it? Oh. Yes. When I come in afterwards, it's but. okay. You know, we next week we will be recording on a different night. It's been so long; class. nobody remembers what I really sound like. That's true. You know, it probably is true. People probably don't even remember that you didn't used to be a sexy, Demi Moore-style yeah. podcaster. Well, maybe when we start playing clips from our 200th yes. episode, yes. a special show. Yes. We have folks who are sending us uh, voice messages and other clips and things that they want to hear. That's right. So if you've been around for 200 episodes or, or, less. or fewer, yes, then feel free to uh, drop us an email or send a voicemail, talk about... What uh, your favorite memory from Crime Writers on is, and, and maybe we'll include it in the show. Leave us a message at 7-BLEEDBAG1. That's our hotline. And yes, you can comment on the fact that Kevin did just subtly grammar correct me because I said less when I should have said fewer. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> and also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady and non-coyote killer, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. That's me. Yeah, I am not a coyote killer, but I just have to tell you that one of my regular rage walking routes, um, one of the trails I do in the woods around here, a man out hiking with his young family um, this week was uh, attacked. They were attacked by a rabid coyote and he strangled it. With his bare hands. Yeah. And it made <laughs> national like, news. T- yeah, international. The BBC's after him. So it took him like 10 minutes, apparently. And he gave this very clinical explanation of how it expired after he stuffed its snout in the snow. Mm. I was like, oh, wow. So I don't know. When I go rage walking again, I might have to have like security protection. Yeah. If I go back out there. Well, you can take on <laughs> one coyote. You just Toby, can't take you- on two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
get some of that bear mace. We from, have a uh, lot of coyotes around here. I, I actually I saw a, co- a young coyote out while I was walking the dogs back when we used to have two, like last year before I broke my leg, uh-huh. a month before. I was out in the morning and I saw a coyote and I'm like, that thing should not be here right now. Because I knew it was like, if you see one during the day, probably rabid. Yeah. I just turned yeah. around and rapidly walked in the other direction. Good. Showed him your ankles. <laughs> exactly. Here's the soft, fleshy pot. <laughs> and finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. First, before we start the show, I just want to do a quick... Patreon plug. On tonight's Patreon after show, we are going to be talking about the latest episode of Ronan Farrow's amazing catch and kill podcast. This is the episode called Patterns. It's very, very interesting uh, on many fronts. We're also going to be talking about a piece of podcast industry news that I just read about before we started taping the show. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to hear that, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media and subscribe by signing up for like five bucks a month or six bucks a month. If you want to hear Laura's amazing podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you can get the crime writers on after show every week. So a bit of TV news, two shows that we reviewed this year. Just announced this week are not coming back, and I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on it. Kevin? Yeah. Watchmen and Mindhunter. Neither is coming back. What are your thoughts? It's disappointing. Um, Watchmen, you know, I, I don't want to say it's for no reason. It isn't like it performed poorly or anything. It was great. And, yeah, I guess it's just that the showrunner doesn't Damon know. Damon Lindelof? Isn't quite certain where it goes. Now, I, I kind of was thinking, uh, you know, what's going to happen where this picks up? You know, the, the final scene is Angela, you know, eating the egg and then was about to step on the pool. Mm. And uh, I'm sure that season two would have opened up with her falling right to the bottom so that they can have some other storyline or mm. maybe those powers come later. Who knows? But I guess he says he just couldn't do it, right? Or I, you... I don't agree. I actually think uh, I think our future Henry uh, show producer here had a great concept for season the next season, which would have been like 30 years in the future from this timeline. Mm-hmm. Where it was a whole new set of characters sort of dealing with, you know, whatever. And I think that was a really good idea. I'm really disappointed about Watchmen because I really wanted to see more. However... I do think this show is now going to end up on like everyone's list yeah. of best shows of all time because it did have one perfect season. And many shows don't. They go on too long or they come back and it's like weird. Like how many times on this podcast have we talked about like season two being like, meh. Watchmen season one was great. Mm-hmm. I feel differently about the Mind The world Hunter, building though. was different. Yeah. It was great. And it just is like, oh, it's too bad you can't explore more. Yeah. But yeah, leave them wanting more. Yeah. Laura, thoughts? Watchmen and Mindhunter, not coming back. Um, I'm super bummed out about Watchmen because I actually, I really loved that show and I got everybody in like my house to watch it and everything and it's, that doesn't happen very often here. But, I, you know, I kind of was thinking, I, I, I felt like it was going to go somewhere and I feel like there are so many shitty shows that get a second season and this was such a good show. I'm like, seriously, with all of the talent that is out there to write 
this show. I, I was I was bummed out. Mindhunter, I feel like I was a little less enthusiastic about the second season than I was the first season because there was some weird, you know, stuff, storylines that didn't quite, they kind of, you know, I was like, eh. But I, I am sad that I'm not going to be seeing um, the handsome Jonathan Groff. Groff sauce. Yeah, anymore. Even though he got kind of a pain in the ass the second but season Lauren, too. So don't maybe you think there's so much more to explore in Mindhunter considering they're like working from real life material and the show yeah. ended like in like the 60s? Like there's like a yeah, lot like, more story to tell there like that one isn't like like Watchmen where you're like oh okay what are we going to do for the second season we've got to be super creative like we were for this season where you like we bash somebody's head in with a hammer at the end and poof he's a new person um (laughs) you know like Mindhunter is like like you said I mean it's like clearly laid out sort of the evolution of the behavioral science unit at the FBI like it's it's out there and and there are plenty of cases that they could just look at their records for. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm bummed out about both of them because right now I'm in a little bit of a lull with new shows and I'd like mm. to have something to look forward to of yeah. shows that I really liked. Like, um, you know, Westworld, that's coming back. And and they're just going to go to a different world, yeah. apparently, this season. So Toby, thoughts on the end of both Mindhunter and Watchmen? So I, I think I, I kind of agree with you that I think Watchmen, you know, it was so inventive uh, and so unique that I think, you know, making a second season was A, going to be tough to be is, you know, sort of different as the first season was from everything else. And it is, you know, sometimes it's kind of nice just to have the one little thing. It is what it is. We don't need to extend it. We leave it as this, you know, perfect little set. Mindhunter, on the other hand, you know, I, I mean, they spent the first two seasons teasing the BLT killer. Yes, Otherwise known as the BTK killer. Um, <laughs> the BLT. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Like you tease this thing for two whole seasons. And you're like, well, you know, we're not actually going to do a third season. So you'll never know what that's all about. Mm. I mean, I, I really like Mindhunter, but it's not as though it's like that original or sort of inventive in the same way that um, Watchmen was. So it doesn't seem to me that there's as much on the line for making a third one sort of artistically. And I think the second season wasn't great. So I think it'd be easy to make a third season that would seem like getting back to what was great about the first season. It's disappointing with both of them, one of which I understand. And the other one, it just seems kind of premature. And you wonder if they'll, you know, in a few years, pick it up again, if, if nothing better kind of comes along. You know, they both have in common is they both use those giant letters. (laughs) I know. I love that. (laughs) The giant letters are pretty giant. Yeah. No, but I actually do agree with Toby. I feel like Mindhunter was built to be a season, like season after season show. Mm -hmm. Although I have to say, Damon Lindelhoff has had shows that have gone on too long. This is the opposite of that. Like, he he obviously can't do a middle thing. He can't just do three seasons. He can only do one or seven. Anyway... I am interested to see what comes next and what is the great next TV phenomenon we'll be watching. I, for one, am looking for a cheer season two, but it's probably not going to happen. No. All right. <laughs> anyway. I just watched uh, The Witcher. That was pretty good. I know. We heard. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't start it. I can't. I just. I know I know people like it. I can't bring myself to start it, but I maybe if I'm sick or something, Laura, I will try. That's and when I'll I watched totally it. change my mind, and then I will yeah. be doing an after show convincing Toby Ball to watch that instead. All right. Are you guys ready to start the review portion of our podcast? Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's get it done. The army has been called in to help with the search for a six-year-old Bally Shannon girl missing since Friday afternoon. 
Mary Boyle is six years of age, has long fair hair with a fringe. In 1977, six-year-old Mary Boyle followed her uncle into the woods, but turned back on her own to return to her grandparents' farm in County Donegal, Ireland. Her disappearance led to massive search of the countryside, though no trace of her has ever been found. When a child goes missing, there's one thing worse than finding a body. I thought, I thought every year that there'd be some kind of news about her. And that's not finding a body. Was there an atmosphere of panic? Oh, God, I... We child missing on the mountain, on a lake beside it, you know. Oh, it was panic, surely. In No Body Recovered from BBC Radio, host Kevin Connolly explores Ireland's oldest missing child case. The podcast is part investigation, part profile of the family left torn apart after Mary's disappearance 40 years ago. It's only when I started looking for Mary that the relationship deteriorated. I think it's terrible what you've done. She must miss her. Of course I do. I'm only trying to find Mary and I'm not going to apologize for that. The podcast weighs the question of whether learning the truth about a missing person is worth its cost. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points from Nobody Recovered. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. All right, I'm going to throw a thesis out at you guys. All right. This podcast is Someone Knows Something, Ireland edition. Yes or no, Kevin Flynn, what do you think? Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> what do you think, Laura? I mean, this is a missing child case, very similar to Someone Knows Something season one. Yeah. Um, although, as Kevin pointed out to me, Someone Knows Something, it's very title promises. Yeah, can I yeah. talk to that before? Yeah. I, I don't know if, uh, I don't mean it up, Laura. No, you go ahead. I think I one time expressed disappointment. Consternation. With Someone Knows Something that might have gone on. Uh, Wait a minute. We might have a clip of that to drop here. Wind chimes made of little glass angels, and they're hanging over Odette's porch. All right. (laughs) I'm just going to stop it right there. Why are you making that face? (laughs) Because, well, as I pointed out before... Um, in my opinion, <laughs> just my opinion as a professional writer mm-hmm. and broadcaster, yep. it tends to get a little purple. Okay, shall we continue? I paused here before knocking to listen to the crystalline ring their wings make as they swirl and come together in the fresh, early autumn breeze. <laughs> I don't believe in angels, but I like the sound of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not laughing at David. I'm laughing at you because your face right now. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to be polite. I just. Why? <laughs> so the thing that I, I, you know, that I think I later talked about, you know, sort of what I thought was wrong with the concept of someone knows something was in the title. The promise. The promise of the title, because and this is also where we talked about endings are important. Now, by saying someone knows something, in a case where it is very likely that child died in the wilderness and the body just hadn't been recovered, that no crime ever took place. By saying someone knows something, then the promise of the podcast is we're going to find that someone. But 
What I suggested was that if the title of the podcast had been named Those They Left Behind, then it sort of refocuses what the audience should be looking at. And then if you want to do a profile of the family and the investigators and how they felt as opposed to we're going to go and crawl under somebody's basement and find the bones of this podcast. Then it becomes a completely different podcast without changing anything. What's the name of this podcast, Kevin, that we're reviewing tonight? No Body Recovered. Which is also Nobody Recovered. Nobody Recovered. It's a pun. It's basically like a dual meaning thing. So basically like- Oh, Nobody Recovered oh, from the- Oh, you didn't get that before? I didn't. <laughs> oh, I yeah. didn't either. Yeah, it's a, it's a double entendre. Now, Laura, aside from the fact that this podcast does not make a promise that someone knows something, one question I have for you before we get into sort of like what the podcast is, this podcast makes an assumption that there is a crime. And that is something that actually I have concerns about because we hear that this young girl went missing, going on a walk with her uncle and then like turning around and like she never appeared again. And then suddenly like in episode two or whatever, it's like there's a criminal and there must have been a crime. I am not 100 percent sure there was a crime, yet the podcast makes the assumption there is. What do you think about that? Did it ever occur to you as you were listening that there may not have actually been a crime here? You know, it did occur to me as I was listening to this, I kind of wavered back and forth because I was listening to these like very vivid descriptions of the landscape there and the bogs and the lake. And it was just very rural and sort of rugged terrain. And I was thinking, I know they did this very thorough search, but it's possible it's going to be like one of those things where like, you know, when they find those people in like, the, the ice that have been there for like 50 years and like, oh, yeah. look, there they are. But I think <laughs> in listening to kind of the, you know, recounting of the different police investigations that took place and um, I started to kind of waver back to the side of there was no sign of her and she wasn't out in the peat bog. She was on the road. So that led me back to the other side. So I think, yes, they do make an assumption, but I definitely think there was enough going on to, you know, reasonably lead you to that same assumption that something sort of nefarious took place here and that this wasn't just a girl who vanished. I I just want to give a nod to your dog, Buddy, who has not made an appearance in this podcast for a very long time. He does have a cameo happening right now. Hello, Buddy. Just so you know, you are a welcome fifth member of this panel. And I have to tell you that, like, he never barks. So I'm like, who is outside my house right now? Oh, we know. But we can't name him. Is that's it against the coyote? British law. Oh my God! Is there a coyote outside my house? Because like nobody's home but but the dog and the cats and I. And I'm like, I don't see any headlights, but the dog's barking. Hmm. All right, Toby, you have questions about this podcast, and the two that strike me most are one: Why is there audio of someone doing bong hits at the beginning of every episode? <laughs> one, two. Second, you have a similar question that I do, except you articulated it better as to basically why are they doing this podcast? Can you just talk about that a little bit, Toby? Sure. You know, to me, it just doesn't seem like a real promising story. Or if if it is a promising story, it's a promising story that should be told in about half the time. Because even from the beginning, there doesn't seem like there's any chance of resolution of like figuring out what happened. The Garda won't talk to them no matter how hard they try. They don't like turn up any new clues. They can't even say the name of the person who some people s- suspect. 
who people have made, actually made a video sort of accusing of it. They can't they can't even like tell you basic things about this person. They just tell you that there is a person. And I guess they, they narrow it down to a male, maybe. I think they say him a few times. There there comes a point, it's like where where, if anywhere, is this is this going? And I do get that, you know, there's some interesting stuff about the about the family dynamics and about sort of the emotional toll maybe of giving up hope that your daughter is is alive even forty two years later, that you're not willing to say, No, I concede that she's she's dead and that'll allow an inquest to happen. Uh so there's like these little things on the edges that I thought were interesting. But I just kind of felt like there's got to be a story that has at least like similarly compelling things on the edges, but then you actually are actually learning something new about the case that you don't get. And in this case, I mean, you basically get everything in the first 10 or 15 minutes of the podcast to give you the entire case and then nothing else turns up. But then you get promised a bunch of stuff that you don't actually get. So at the end of episodes one, two and three, you hear there are theories, there's a suspect, there's this, there's that. But then in episode five, right. we hear there's potentially a suspect with no payoff. So I think I think the reason they're doing this story now, it was and it was just sort of slipped in at the end, because I'm like, why would you do this now? Why is there new interest now? It's because the law is changing about who can request an inquiry into the death. So up until now, they've been in this stagnant holding pattern because her mother doesn't want to reopen the case and have a formal investigation and this formal inquiry. But now the law is changing. So her twin sister, who has this theory about what happened and thinks there's more information, she might now be able to, under this new law, reopen the case. So I think that's why they're putting it out there now. Well, I guess my my feeling would be then put it out in like a year once you find something (laughs) to tell. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. I, I don't disagree. I but mean, I don't I, think that was the point of the podcast. Well, that's the thing, Laura. You think the point of this podcast was what I like to call the Irish feelings box, yeah, which is basically about like, okay, so I don't want to make light of this family's grief. There is, however, so much Irish feelings box stuff in this podcast. This podcast is, Kevin, it's a joke I make to you often. Mm -hmm. Irish people, you have feelings. You put them in a box and you shove them under the bed. Say we don't deal with it. (laughs) There's an amazing (laughs) tiny scene in this podcast where the mother of this missing girl one of the most interesting like details about this podcast, which they wait to tell you, which I don't know why, that this girl who went missing has a twin sister. Yeah. yeah. To me, like, lead with that. That no, is No, it was a great reveal. No, it was, it was a good reveal because it made you want to listen to episode two. Right. Uh, but- I was in the car with Lily when we were listening to this, <laughs> and she sat up and said, wait, what? <laughs> so, yeah. so basically, we learn in the podcast that the mom of the missing girl... And the twin of the missing girl, so her mother and daughter, are estranged. And they take a very long time explaining to you why, and I still don't 100% understand why. However, the reporter Kevin Connolly says to the mom, like, dresses the estrangement, and the mom is like, oh, it's so sad. And then, like, he says to her, like, why don't you reach out and reconnect? And she goes, well... I'm just waiting for her to apologize. <laughs> and I'm like, that is the Irish feelings box. That is what I am talking about. <laughs> like, like this feelings impasse that keeps things from happening. Am I the only one who has, like, even though they explained it like a hundred times, I still have 
no understanding of why these people won't talk to each other. I, I think they have what my father calls Irish Alzheimer's, <laughs> where they forget everything except the grudge. <laughs> oh, that's Your good. Your Irish father says that, we should I say. Try. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're not making fun of the Irish or Alzheimer's. Hey, I can do it. I'm in the tribe, man. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. So, Laura, you think this is really about that. It's the rift yeah. of the family that comes from the pain of an unknown loss. That's what you think it's about? No, I think it was. So when I went into this, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be like reexamining this case and they're going to dig up new information. But then as I'm listening, I'm like, no, this isn't necessarily a story about new things happening in the case or who actually did it. This is a story about the lasting impact that this little girl going missing has had on her family, the family dynamics, the family relationships, and like really the country. I mean, it's the oldest missing person case in the country. And it's really sort of looking at, you know, the emotional toll. So I think it was more like a study in that than it was trying to be an investigative podcast about who did it, who, you know, who's the guilty person. And I think that that was really interesting. But I think Again, it went on too long, and I think that it could have been organized better and explaining these relationships and how these relationships were affected. Because in the end, I was like, so they don't get along because the sister wants an inquiry and the mom doesn't? I, um, I have a theory about that. Yeah. I think it's because the sister thinks whoever they think did it, the sister and the aunt, it's either or it's somebody that the mom close close to and doesn't think could have done yeah. I I didn't yeah. watch the YouTube thing that they kept talking about because I feel like I'd be breaking some the podcast made me feel like I'd be breaking some law by watching it I didn't look at the video either but I did take a minute to look online as to what's going on with these different people now they make reference to someone that they believe is the suspect or at least was confronted in this video and it was a local politician who has since died uh, but uh, he started to sue the documentarian, and he has died, and a judge very recently said that the estate could continue the lawsuit. Mm. By the way, there was also an arrest mm. that was never mentioned. Mm. There was an arrest in 2014 of somebody who was from the town that the mom told the newspaper she knew, and then he was released the next day. Mm. So how that all fits in, I don't know. Now, it's very complicated the way that those laws work in the U.K., in Ireland as far as who you can sue and whatnot. And it is an obstacle telling the story. But I do wish that instead they gave some context mm. to these people. Are Now, they can't say who, like, the suspect was, but they could have given some context as to why or how this person fits in. They could have said this was somebody in her life. Or is this somebody or she this knew? this is somebody who lives in the area. Right. Something like that. Right. I mean, if you say it's someone that she knew... It points to the family mm. because this wasn't her home. This was her grandparents' home, the family, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if they're given some reason why they thought it was this, one of the things has to do with there were rumors at the time that politicians or politically connected people told the guards in those days to lay off. But, you know, that's all sort of mixed in with the rumors and everything like that. So so who knows? But I thought what would have been more important to me was you can keep all of those identifying details secret. But if you've given some context within the bounds of the law, it would have been more informative and we could move on instead of wondering 
who the mystery people are because then we're wondering if they're even suspects. Right. So I have a couple of like quibbles about that, the journalistic side of it that I wanted to just ask Toby about. I was listening to this. I was like, oh, I wonder if Toby hears this too. One is there's something for me about a very BBC sounding British journalist like Kevin Connolly, who in the podcast and his like dopey asides about like, hey, listen to me sounding like an old man talking about Spotify with mm-hmm. my young producer or whatever. It's almost like a weird, like, colonial aspect to the way that he sort of talks about the characters in the story. Like, at one point, they have somebody who has a very strong, like, Scottish accent. I can't put a finger on when I first heard about it. It was just all, it was always there, you know, with a lot of photo albums and stuff, and my mum would bring them out. Joe is originally from Glasgow, and as you can hear, he's in no danger of losing his accent. Not that you're not going to be able to tell that from his accent, as though he's doing, like, an anthropological... Like, look at these people. But then second, there is also this very heavy reliance on, hey, audience, let me tell you how journalism works. And by the way, I don't like it when podcasts do this, but I'm going to do this right now and play tape for you of me and my producer in my car talking. Yeah, I'll record and you just talk whenever you want, Kevin. And the roads in this part of the world are just narrow threads of rough tarmac linking radio reporters call these things stand-ups their attempts to do honest off-the-cuff description without a script you never get them right first time and you often don't get them right at all for most of the way the road is featureless so the thing about where they where they do the audio in the car that seemed a little awkward and it did seem at like sort of, um, you know, checking off the transparency box mm. rather than like really giving you a whole lot of insight into what was going on. Because if I remember correctly, it was like we're just doing this quick little thing where we give our impressions of, you know, what's our surroundings. And we usually don't use the first one. And here it is. Yeah. And it's like. Okay. Why <laughs> oh, does that matter? The road is stark. It reminds me of when you have yeah. to explain why a joke is funny. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then it's not funny. No, I think I think that's right. But I do appreciate the transparency stuff. But just freaking tell us. <laughs> I mean, that's not. It's a little bit different. Like if they'd spend a little bit more time on, I, I don't know, like the journalistic ethics around talking about somebody and not naming them. Because in some ways, you know, I think everybody's reflex is. Right. So it's almost by not uh, giving any kind of identifying information whatsoever, you know, the sort of I think what a lot of people who would think about it very much would deduce was it's a member of the family. So anyway, I I thought that that was kind of an odd bit as far as his attitude. Colonial is like a pretty heavy thing to lay on somebody, but he does. I, I don't know. It is funny. I mean, I was thinking a little bit of Dairy Girls where the British guy. The boy is there. And, <laughs> you know, he's the British guy and everybody is, it's so clear or whatever. James. You know, he's a British guy in Ireland. Yeah. Like, and he has an Irish. Getting to the bottom of stuff. Producer. <laughs> and like everything he says he doesn't like about the production of the podcast is something she's doing. Like clearly she's the one recording him in the car. Stop right. trolling your producer on your podcast that <laughs> she is producing. And there's also like this weird little ghost of the troubles, right? Yes. That, that kind of. Bubbles up all the time. Yeah. They're they're right near the border and then the, the guy from the Garda in, in Northern Ireland doesn't want his name used and it's interesting. I mean it's another thing. And that's another thing that might have been a good point to reflect on a little bit. 
instead of, you know, how many takes it takes to get the lay of the land. And here's our first one. Now, Kevin, you listen to this podcast in the car with your daughter, Lily. Mm hmm my wonderful stepdaughter, as you were driving back and forth on a weekend holiday that you guys went on. I said holiday because we're listening to something that takes place in (laughs) Ireland. She told me she has a theory. Did she share it with you? No. Tell me what her theory was. You tell me. She assumed that because Mary's sister, Anne, is a twin, and Mm -hmm. and and Anne is the one who has this suspicion about a suspect at that age, she said something about a secret. Yes. She wonders... If perhaps Anne was also the victim of yes. sexual assault, because if, and this is just if, if uh, Mary were a victim of sexual assault, it stands to reason that the twin sister would also be in a similar situation. It could also have been a victim and would know that and would then years later say. If they were, say, molested by a relative or friend of the family. Yeah. yeah. It also makes the mom's reaction of like, there's no secret. Yeah. Yep. Right. Make a little more sense. Because when she's saying that, I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, but it also could be that all that assault could have happened, but has nothing to do with the disappearance. That's true. She could have just fallen into a hole. Yeah, or it could be a completely different. She literally suspect. could have been walking and falling into a hole. She was six years old, for goodness sakes, or seven years old. That is the thing that I, I will, I could not possibly discount. Yeah, yeah, because that does happen. And I'm not being light about it. Like I literally was thinking, if a young child, it's possible like, this turning isn't around a crime. And walking back, and just like, like someone knows something. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, quick question about that whole thing, Lara, is there any way that you can give me a concise explanation? Hey, first of all, the mom Mary is now getting hate mail from someone pretending to be her dead daughter, which is crazy. That was weird. B, why does everyone in this podcast hate each other unless there is a family secret that yes. might be exposed if this maybe crime is pursued? Do you have any other explanation as to why this whole family has Irish feelings box fever, stuffing their feelings, hating each other? What is going on? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Yeah, I, I have to say, I kind of agree. I think Lily, that was a very brilliant theory because in, in thinking about that, it really makes it all make sense. Like we we are hearing that there's this rift in the family. There are parts of the family that don't speak. There are parts of the family that want an investigation. There's this secret that nobody will talk about. And this is like that sort of stiff upper lip sort of generation where we don't talk about those things. And if you talk about those things, you are betraying the family or you're betraying the person and these are things that happened and we just move along and that's the way it is and i definitely think there has to be something more going on to have led to such a serious estrangement there's two distinct factions it's not just the mom and the twin sister there's the other person who's like running the facebook group the or aunt. the online group and the famous country singer aunt yeah so I don't know. I think that we got kind of the, I don't want to say the superficial sort of version of the family dynamics, but I think that there's more to be learned about what's happening here. Final question, Toby. What is the deal with the whole episode about the dad when he apparently doesn't really have a role in the narrative other than being the dad that we didn't hear about because he died? I don't know. When it gets teased and you and you just see that in the list of episodes you're like oh shit yeah but then when you listen to the thing it's like oh he seems like kind of a nice guy (laughs) so i i totally didn't get it yeah that seemed like a we need to make six episodes or whatever it ended up being and so we'll do we promised mary we'd do one about the dad what do you think kevin well if the narrative focus is not 
the strictly the investigation, but a look at the family dynamics that I think it's important to include, mm. how the father felt about this and how his loss is felt by the family. Mm. But I think it's also like an 18-minute episode or something like that. It's not an hour long talking about Charlie. Yeah. You know, so I thought it was probably appropriate length for the amount of time that it deserved. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do and tell our audience, thumbs up or thumbs down, should they listen to Nobody Recovered, a.k.a. Nobody Recovered, from the BBC. Uh, Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. You're the one who recommended that we review this podcast on our show. What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Nobody Recovered, a.k.a. Nobody recovered. Well, I'm going to go with thumbs up. And it's not my most enthusiastic thumbs up. But, you know, this is the kind of like, I really enjoy these BBC podcasts. They're a different style. They're not this highly stylized style and some of the things like we listen to in Dirty John or those type of podcasts. But what I like about it is I, I really just sort of appreciate listening to the culture where you know, in this case where this this disappearance happened, where this case happened, it's a different storytelling sort of approach. I found it very interesting. I think there was definitely some things that could have been changed in terms of streamlining some of the storytelling in a way. So there was a little bit different narrative flow. But overall, I mean, I thought it was interesting. And if you like those sort of slower, sort of different sort of like those BBC approaches to the storytelling, like what's that one we listened to where they were out like walking around and were hearing all the rain while they were like walking up the mountain looking for something. Oh, the one from... Cold Valley? No. Ice Valley? Ice. Death ice and, Valley. Death and Ice Death Valley. Death and Refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. But, but this one, I mean, it's definitely, this isn't a whodunit. This is more of a, how does this sort of crime affect a family 40 years later? And I think, you know, it's a really interesting story. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Nobody Recovered, a.k.a. Nobody Recovered. I think I'm going to harken back once again to uh, Somebody Knows Something, because I think Kevin, when he was leaving his like final judgment on that, said that he liked the reporting crew. But he thought they picked the wrong story, a judgment that he then revised later to say he didn't even really like the reporting. <laughs> but no, he likes David Ridgen. He doesn't like his writing, right? Let like- my rant stand for itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I, I kind of I, like I like the reporters, and I think the the parts that are reported uh, are reported well. I thought the first fifteen minutes was strong. There were other strong parts. I am totally baffled by the beginning. I have no idea what that meant or what that was supposed to be or anything. I kept thinking that maybe it would tie into something. I I mean, I got it that it was a diver and like holding your breath and stuff, but you know, why that specifically? I mean, they talked to the divers. They said, well, we we checked it out. We didn't find anything. It's like, uh, okay. And I also kind of get the feeling that they're, again, like like, uh, somebody knows something, that there just may be less to this story than there seems. I don't understand why the mother, if there was a family secret, would agree to do a podcast about this. Mm. It just it's it it doesn't make any sense to me. You think that you would try and avoid doing a podcast. So I give it kind of a thumb sideways. It, it just if they do something else, I'll be psyched to listen to it. But this story, I just I kind of there's just not a a ton of there there, in my opinion. Kevin, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for no body recovered, aka Nobody recovered. By the way, why am I the only person who noticed that? I don't know. Maybe because it's not really what it is. I Literally, don't know. he keeps saying the whole time, like, the family never recovered. Like, he says <laughs> it over and over again. Kevin, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down? 
I'm a, I'm a thumbs up. I'm not a big thumbs up. First of all, I think there, there's a little bit in here of uh, the Irish These Are Their Stories podcast, because you could do the theme song. You think you know who done it. <laughs> uh, and I love that they uh, tried to test the uh, Wonder Twin powers yeah. by bringing one twin and let's see where she goes. Yeah. The other one probably went the same way. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was bananas. The, was, the reconstruction uh, of the walk. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's just all hide in the bushes and see where Anne goes. Look, it doesn't fire on all cylinders, but I, overall I think it's a good effort. The BBC style is not always very engrossing to American audiences because of the pace. Although I think that from all the different podcasting that we've heard, that it's pulled our year closer to that style. I think it's okay. I do appreciate that they say right off, and they make no bones about it, that there's not going to be a body here. There's not going to be a, uh, an answer to the mystery, the crime. So we're going to look at some other things. They explain that. They live up to that promise. I'm a thumbs up. I have not decided yet where I'm going to land on this podcast, which to me is the definition of a thumb sideways. Yeah. I don't want to give it a thumbs down only because I do think people who listen to our show, like some of them may like it. Some of them may be like, hey, this is interesting. It's international. There's like, you know, a sad family tragedy here that, you know, is worth exploring. Plus, it also enters into that other true crime area with that guy, Black, the serial killer, who we talked about an episode of These Are Stories, Law and Order podcast. He was the basis for one of the mm, episodes Black, we yep. covered. Yeah. And so there's some interesting stuff here. However, if the BBC were interested in creating a serialized podcast with multiple seasons, which I hope this is, that would be cool. That's, yeah. About a missing missing persons cases where like somebody left and never came back and no one knows what happened. To start with a story that is so oblique in which they can't actually tell us anything they might know is a strange choice to me. There are so many breadcrumbs. There is an aunt who like sang with Dolly Parton, who's famous. There's a twin. Uh, there's so many interesting aspects of this that could have been the nut graph or the lead to this story that just ended up sort of being dropped in later. There's a lot of, it feels like, compromises to the family. Like, you know, I'm not saying that a reporter shouldn't be sensitive to what a victim's family would want. However, it seems like there are whole swaths of this podcast that were made just to please the interviewees of the family. And you know what? Another weird thing is that there is clearly a line of inquiry where, you know, the last person who saw this child alive is never really talked about in the podcast. And there's all the other oblique stuff about a suspect. I don't know. It just kind of made me think that maybe this was like a half-baked well, They were really handcuffed. Yeah, that they really couldn't, so maybe they shouldn't have. So for me, yes, again, it's a hard thumb sideways. Moving on. When the body of a young boy is recovered, Detective Ralph Anderson is confident the Little League coach is his killer. Eyewitnesses saw Terry Maitland invite the boy into a van, emerge from the wooded crime scene covered in blood, and then change his clothes at a strip club and radio for a taxi cab. The evidence and the counter evidence, I'm struggling with that. 
Where are you going with all this? Is that Terry Maitland? 70 miles away. The same day, the same time as Frankie Peterson was murdered. But Terry Maitland was miles away at a conference, a rock-solid alibi backed up by colleagues and video footage. Detective Anderson wonders, how can this murder suspect be in two places at once? I'm as baffled by this conflicting evidence as you are. You killed my son, Terry! Look at me! Terry murdered a child. Everything he does after that is like he's begging us to catch him. What kind of criminal does that? HBO's adaptation of the novel The Outsider mixes crime with Stephen King's patented brand of small-town psychological horror. The all-star cast explores the paradox of the murder and the thought that supernatural forces may be at play. We have not read the book and we can't spoil the whole series, but we will be going into plot points for the first couple of episodes of The Outsider. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to get our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, Laura Bricker, you're a giant chicken and you don't typically like Stephen King stuff, except you did like Castle Rock, I think. I did. Uh, But you were scared to watch this. Yeah. But now you are in. Tell us what you like so far about The Outsider. Yeah. So I'm definitely too chicken to watch Stephen King stuff. And I close my eyes and I even started watching like season two of Castle Rock and I've been closing my eyes. But I'm really hooked on this and I'm hoping I'm brave enough to finish it because right now, like the first half of this feels to me like true detective it's got that sort of true detective season one. feel. Yeah. Season one, yes. Yeah. And it's got that good, like, sort of, like, there's a lot of, like, creepy stuff going on. And you've got, like, the damaged police officer who's in the strip club who, like, beats people up and stuff. And, you know, there's something that's obviously happened with the lead detective and his son, who you're assuming has died. I haven't actually heard that, but it sounds like he's he's no longer around. No, um, he died. They visit his grave. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Okay, sorry a minute. She's um, so much of a chicken that she couldn't even watch that part. I, I, I totally, like, didn't even watch that part. I was like, what's happening? It's so scary. Um, but I feel like the, like, the sort of straightforward sort of hard-boiled true crime detective sort of procedural that's going on right now has like a lot of the elements that I really loved about True Detective. But once we get to season three, it hits a whole new plane. And that's where I'm like, oh, my God, I want to binge this whole season now. There's 11 episodes or whatever it is. I don't think I can wait. I need to know what happens. But I know it's going to get more supernatural and scary. And I'm just conflicted about that because I want to know how it ends. (laughs) Now, Toby, the setup for this series, I think, not having... Now, again, I have not read the novel. I don't think any of us have is so, so great. Like, detective noir, there's great policing, there's a crime, there's a trail of evidence, uh, but the suspect, of course, Terry Maitland, played by Jason Bateman, was somewhere else, and there's video of it. It is so perfect, so very, very Stephen King, but such a perfect setup. But because there's Stephen King... You know there's supernatural stuff coming. And Toby, I know that you have two doubts whenever we approach anything, maybe three. A, you hate superheroes, which this isn't a thing. You also have doubts about paranormal plot lines. And you also have doubts whenever there is a perfect setup. What are you thinking right now after three episodes of this series about the fact- Rebecca just did my review for me. No, but we're, we're, like, we're, at, we're, at, we're at that Toby point where it's like great setup, great writing, and- here we are. 
How scared are you right now, Toby Ball? This whole thing is just going to come unraveled. Uh, I'm pretty scared. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not scared of watching the show. I'm just scared that I'm going to watch like four more episodes and then be like, that was a waste. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think this is the kind of thing where coming up with great setups isn't that hard. Resolving them is because you have to have something that, that ends up making sense within you know, the universe that's created in that work, right? So so clearly there's going to be something supernatural here. So it's not like True Detective where, you know, you're waiting for some kind of more or less realistic ending. You know, you're not, you don't expect True Detective to have like a demon sorcerer or something where that's definitely in play here. You know, I, I think this is one of those ones that's hard to review right now beyond sort of are you going to continue watching which i which i will but yeah i mean the setup the setup's awesome it's confounding i mean the acting is really good you've got some really good characters he does another thing which i, I guess it's just kind of a stephen king thing I, not that i've read very much of his stuff but this happened in castle rock too which is you know to me part of what's interesting about these is having normal people confronted with stuff that they just can't explain, mm. like the supernatural and how they kind of make sense of that. And then I think that's undercut a little bit when you introduce sort of protagonists that also have supernatural powers. Mm. And I, I think that kind of changes the dynamic a little bit in a way that I don't like so much. So I think in Castle Rock, they had that woman who you know was a psychic. And in this one, they have this woman who it's not exactly clear what her deal is, other than she seems to know a hell of a lot of stuff about things that she never actually experienced. Are you talking about Holly? 1985, Cubbies Mets. Must have been towards the end of the season somewhere. But after all these years, who could remember the date? Did they win or lose? Cubbies lost. September 26th. September 26th. Wish I could remember who was pitching. Johnny Umberg was started for the Cubs, but was knocked out on the fourth. He was relieved by Ron Meredith, Steve Engel, and Jay Baller. Dwight Gooden, on the other hand, threw a complete game shutout for the Mets. <laughs> Hello, Alec. Who's your friend? Cynthia Envo as Holly, who is... On the spectrum. Yeah, she's sort of this magical, but she's also sort of a magical character, which I think is a little bit problematic because she's what? the only black character in the series. Right. No, no, no. In the book, she is a white character. In the book, she's not written as a black character. This is a black actress taking on. Did you on. read the book? Are you like... I looked up that because <laughs> I saw that comment you made and I was yeah. troubled by it. I am troubled by the it's, black magical character thing that happens in so many things yeah. we review. I'm glad that they cast... She's a great actress. I'm glad they cast her. It's just disappointing to see yet another black character with mystical power. So, that's like, it's just such an overdone like thing. King. Someone's yes. going to have the mystical powers. So let's just powers. put that aside for now. Yeah. Go ahead, Toby, with what you were saying. Like, I haven't seen a whole lot of Stephen King stuff, and I, I just thought of Castle Rock. Yeah. But, you know, The Shining, I guess the boy Danny has got his little psychic side. But it was sort of a different situation because he was like a damaged child in danger mm. rather than sort of a strange, you know, uh, defense investigator like Laura Bricker. Yeah. Now, now, Kevin, like a lot of Stephen King, we should just talk about this for a second. 
book to film projects are not good unless they're taken out of the hands of Stephen King. We've seen this over and over again. The Shining, amazing movie that Stephen King hated. Right. It was very different from his vision of The Shining. Carrie, I think the book was better actually, but go ahead. Amazing movie that Stephen King didn't like. Look, for like. every good Stephen King movie, <laughs> there's a bad Stephen King oh, movie. Oh, a very bad Stephen you know, King movie. And the, you know, for every green mile, there's a maximum overdrive. Right. And for- or Cujo. For Cujo. Or the original Pet Cemetery with Denise Crosby. Oh, yeah. Terrible for, movie. No, no, that was a great movie. Ooh. Pet Cemetery? Uh, the original? Scary book. Scary book. Yeah, anyway, also a great book. Anyhow. Can we just talk about like the A-list quality of this show and the cast? I mean, the cast is- freaking incredible you have ben mendelson who our audience might know from bloodlines right yeah yeah you have julianne nicholson yeah who our our audience might know julianne nicholson from masters of sex but she's been in tons of things there's a great list of character actors yes who are here plus jason bateman jason bateman plus mayor winningham oscar either nominated or winning not 100 percent sure but even jason bateman who is excellent no one say oh there's an a-lister oh it's a marquee name um, he, Jason Bateman is excellent. He has really earned his own name. Not as like, I'm the funny kid from Silver Spoons. He also made this. Had an, yeah. yeah. Well, I think a lot of these these uh, actors here are listed as executive producers. But, you know, these are really quality people. They're not the million-dollar babies. But they all have given great performances and are given the space to be great actors in this uh, in this space, actors and actresses. So that's what I like about the casting. Yeah. Now, Laura, like you also enjoy the style of this show very much, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I know often we gripe about HBO with their sound and I won't get into that. And and there were some complaints (laughs) on this one about being too dark. But what I really liked was I liked the angles, uh, like the cinematography. And Mm -hmm. I liked how they shot angles. Like there was a lot of times they'd have a conversation going and they wouldn't show the people, but they would shoot like the bottom of the door where the conversation was happening or like they're going in the jail and they like shoot sort of an angle on the jail bars or top of the gate. That was yeah. opening up. Yeah. And, and then one thing they did a lot, and I think it's probably going to come to play as this continues, is shooting from a distance while you're hearing the scenes unfold as if somebody is watching the whole time that this is happening. But I really, I just thought it was really, it kind of added like a whole nother level to the story. It's just the way that you were seeing what was happening from sort of a different vantage point. Now, there is this cascading effect This is like, again, very Stephen King, but also a great setup for something that you know is just wrong. And the show does keep showing this, um, you know, visage of this like dark character in the hoodie sort of Mm -hmm. off in the distance, which I actually don't know if it's necessary to keep showing that because... What ends up happening is that, you know, this child dies and there's the whole like body discovery and forensic examination of stuff. And the family ends up getting basically wiped out. Like the father Mm -hmm. has this horrible death by suicide. The brother ends up being this shooter at the courthouse. So it's basically like this family has been cursed and the whole family just gets wiped out. I found that, I don't know about you guys, profoundly creepy in a way that um, you talk about like not just story setup but sort of um, quick path and then also Terry Malin Jason Bateman's character 
also dies like very quickly in the series, which may or may not hint toward the twist in the series. I'm not sure. Well, oh, so I, I read the everybody spoilers. who read the book is laughing at us. But okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I think what they're getting at here is it's 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 again, there's this supernatural element that when the actual mystery is revealed is going to be like the aha moment. But with these people that are being knocked out of the way who are good, decent people, it's sort of these are the the victims of something much bigger than them and just is going to show the strength of this evil power that is eventually going to be revealed. But I, I just want to talk briefly about that that last scene when we have Ben Mendelsohn, who, by the way, I loved in Bloodline. He was the super He's creepy, wonderful. Dark, He's so scary in that show, yes, Bloodline. Yeah. Disturbing brother in Bloodline to the Friday Night Lights guy. But also in this, I just think there's so many layers to the relationship that he has with Terry Maitland, who was his son's Little League coach and... You know, there's a really powerful scene when he goes to visit Jason Bateman in jail and they're talking about the son when the son was playing Little League and how he was like this little guy and how he coached him. And he had grit. In all the years I've been coaching Little League, your son Derek was the best drag bunner I ever had. And he was just a little guy. You know, he was very small, smallest kid on the team. But he had a lot of guts. He was never afraid to crowd the plate, even if there was some great big eighth grader throwing heat. And most kids that short, you just count on them for walks. That's all you can expect. But he wasn't having that. He just kept swinging and striking out. And the kids even started calling him uh, the Whiffer, secretly. They called him Whiffer. I asked him to stop, but they're 12 and 11. Only time he got on base is when he got hit by a pitch, so tough to blame him. But when I saw that he wasn't going to quit, that he was going to just keep swinging and striking out, I taught him how to bunt. And not a lot of kids like to do that. They're afraid they drop that bat over the plate. Fastball comes in, they get their fingers smashed, but not him. He never flinched, not once. And he flew down that first baseline. You remember how many bunt singles he got? A lot more than I expected. But I think for me, like having those two characters who are just such strong actors and that scene, which is a very powerful scene, followed by the scene where then you see Ben Mendelsohn's character, the detective, walking Jason Bateman on like the perp walk into court. And it's like, you see this moment where it's like, he knows something doesn't make sense about this case. He feels on some level, this guy isn't maybe necessarily guilty and I'm going to walk with him so he doesn't have to do this alone, but I can't explain why. And then, spoiler, boom, everything hits the fan. But I just think that the, these sort of dynamics between the characters in the story and, and, and the actors that they cast in those roles was just um, really made it. I, I can't wait to watch more. Now, Toby, the, the ripple effect story that we see with the victim and his family kind of getting wiped out, it kind of continues with Terry Maitland's family, Terry Maitland's daughter. Uh, I think, in in my opinion, the creepiest kind of part of the show is the storyline with her nightmares. Wait. No! I will not! I will not! I will not! Shh! Okay. Tell him to get out of my room. Tell him to get out. This is a bad dream. It's okay. No one's here, my love. There's no one here. It's okay. Look. Look. No one's here. We're having a bad dream. It's okay. He was here. He was saying bad things to me. In this kind of fiction... I don't think there's any problem with the supernatural. It's supernatural fiction as opposed to getting a psychic to comment on a true life <laughs> case. Right? right. I think it's, it, it's like a slightly different thing. So it's Stephen King. You're going to get supernatural stuff and that that's part of the deal. And it's, you know, hopefully it's good. Th- that to me is like the parts that were scary. 
I guess. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I was really like lost sleep over it or whatever, but the parts that are that like put your, you know, have the hair in your neck stand on end or whatever that is are the ones where she is seeing something in her sleep or not in her sleep, just in her room while she's awake and the way she talks about it. And then there's the, you know, the scene where, you know, the detective is like, you know, you don't have to be scared. She says, oh, I, I'm not scared. I'm angry. I think you're the one who's supposed to be scared. Mm. It's one of those creepy things to come from the mouth of like a seven-year-old, you know, to, to that's her understanding of what's going on. I thought that part was really effective. And I would sort of contrast it to the very end of the third episode where the angry cop like has a rash on the back of back of his neck and is sort of having some issue at, at the strip club, which again, I don't know why all these things have to have strip clubs. Mm. It's like every fucking HBO thing. It's, it's our like baser strip club, instinct. Strip club, strip club. Well, maybe they own that set and they just want to roll yeah. it out and use it all the time. But he's like, I will do your bidding or whatever yeah. the hell he says. I'm like, oh, the boy. evil's taking him over, Toby, in the pig barn. I know. I don't Well, those are a lot of elements that are typical of a Stephen King story, right? You have somebody who's a teacher. Yes. So they can make some comment about Kurt Vonnegut. So everybody knows that Stephen King reads books. A teacher or a writer. That's always a yeah, trope. Yeah, a teacher or writer, something like that. You have the town, which has, is a character unto itself. There's always a monster of some kind, right? Which is the guy, whoever, whatever's shooting needles into that guy's right, back, you know, right? Right, sort of the, whatever the name, the evil is. You have the intuitive child who knows the things that adults don't, which makes it scary. Usually you have a you know some hero with a special gift or that has some sort of special gift thrust upon them. And the best one is the bully. Mm. There's always a bully. And the bully always seems to be the one that gets indoctrinated by the outside evil and is made to be the puppet and do the bidding of the evil. Literally every Stephen King book. You just wrapped it up. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's... <laughs> Needful thing that's stand, yeah. Can we talk about that guy who pulls the shank out of his knee? Yeah, what was up with what? that? Yeah, we don't know what that storyline is yet. Oh. It's a whole sideways. Like, did someone teleport that plastic knife into that guy's leg? It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do what we do. Let's let our audience know. Should they check out The Outsider on HBO, a crime slash supernatural slash maybe horror show from the mind of Stephen King and our wonderful showrunners at HBO. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Outsider, which, by the way, for the record, you said when I first pitched it, you were too chicken to watch. Where are you right now, Laura Bricker? Um, I can't wait for the next episode, and I can't wait to watch the rest of the series. This is so good. I have been telling everybody to watch it. It is really amazing, but it really kicks into high gear in episode three, which we're at now, and by next week, episode four, which we haven't seen yet. So episode three is where all of a sudden you're like, I need to binge this in one day, and I can't, and that sucks. So I would say thumbs up. All right, Toby Bo, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Outsider on HBO? I'll give the first three episodes a thumbs up. When Laura was saying it reminds her of True Detective season one, uh, it does me a little bit, and that's not a good thing uh, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Because, again, I, it was about this part in True Detective Season 1 where I was all jacked up and then it just went straight downhill. So, yeah, first three episodes, I'm definitely going to watch the fourth. I, I'm hoping it keeps up this level of quality, uh, but I have my suspicions. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kevin? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Outsider on HBO? Uh, like Toby on the first three episodes, I am thumbs up. And I think it might remind us all of True Detective because it takes place in Georgia. Mm. The book is set in Oklahoma. 
they obviously decided to shoot in Oklahoma because, yay, tax credits. Yeah. You and mean they decided to shoot in Georgia. In Georgia. Where yeah. did they shoot? They changed the storyline from Oklahoma to Georgia. The original book was Oklahoma, so this TV yeah, series this is set in Georgia. and shot in Georgia. Right, but True Detective was in Louisiana. Oh, shit, you're right. Because of tax credits. <laughs> I totally got that wrong. It's all the Confederacy. Oh, damn. No, it has to do with tax. The whole like side story that we could talk about in the after show someday. Some states make it easy to set your show there because they will give your production company a lot of tax-free stuff to do it, right? Yeah, and then you can sell those tax credits to other companies right. that have nothing to do with it. So it's you can make thing. money. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. So thumbs up or thumbs down, Kevin? Uh, I am thumbs up. Uh, I, I really enjoy Stephen King stuff. Yes, for every good Stephen King adaptation, there's a poor Stephen King adaptation. But this one is really good. I think the concept is intriguing, this paradox. How can he be in two places at the same time? I have some theories, and I want to see if they play out. So you say for every Stephen King adaptation, there's a bad Stephen King adaptation? There may be two. I say for every Stephen King thing, there's a bad Stephen King thing. And as you know, I am a huge Stephen King fan. Huge. I've read many, 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 many Stephen King books. He's one of my favorite writers. He's also one of my least favorite writers at the exact same time. So every time I'm approaching something that is a Stephen King thing, I'm always like, ah, we'll see. You know it when you see it and you feel it that it's a Stephen King thing. You can read one chapter of anything Stephen King wrote. You know it's a Stephen King thing. I love this series so far because... I wouldn't have known it was a Stephen King thing immediately because I think the showrunners have elevated it to a level that feels more True Detective, more HBO. The casting is resplendent so far. I'm really, really enjoying The Outsider so far. I do have some quibbles about sort of like the African-American magic that has been brought in with the casting, even though I am thrilled they cast a black actress in that role. Uh, there are just like some quibbles I have with the storytelling that just have to do more with how TV is made than how this particular story is being told. So yeah, I'm a big thumbs up so far for The Outsider on HBO. Kudos to the showrunners and kudos, yes, to you, Stephen King. Thanks for writing this and making it into a great TV show. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. week. It's cold outside. How cold is it? It's so cold that reptiles are falling from the damn sky. <laughs> In Florida, the National Weather Service issued a warning during a recent cold snap to beware of falling iguanas. When the temperature drops into the 40s, the cold-blooded animals become stiff and lethargic. The last time the mercury went down that low, green iguanas were falling out of trees as they did this week. The danger here isn't being struck from a falling eight-pound reptile, although that could do some damage. They say people have been picking up the iguanas thinking they were dead or injured uh, and like maybe like disposing of the carcasses. But the iguanas would then attack once their body goes back to normal. Wildlife officials say green iguanas and pythons are invasive species in Florida and these cold spells help to thin out their populations. But here's my question to you guys. Quasi-frozen, stiff and lethargic iguanas raining down from above. Laura Bricker. Thoughts? No, thank you. Um, I have to tell you, anytime we've gone to Florida and we've been like staying somewhere at a hotel and we're like outside in the pool or the hot tub, 
you look up and you see the iguanas and they're always like on the fence looking at you. And I'm like, um, I, I just, I can't do it. And, um, but I have to say, I have some friends that just moved down there and this was very funny. They just posted on Facebook, marked safe from falling iguanas. Nice. <laughs> huh. Toyball, what about you? Uh, Quasi-frozen iguanas just raining down from above. We live in New Hampshire. We've got all sorts of stuff raining down on us, but not these what do you think? Uh, well, my two my two iguana experiences are one. I went and stayed at an eco lodge type place in, in uh, St. John. Of course, oh, you yeah. did in the Virgin Islands, yeah. and it was an iguana reserve yeah. where oh. if you got an iguana in the U.S. and it got too big and you didn't want it anymore, but you didn't want to just release <laughs> it into the Everglades like everybody else, or if it was stiff and lethargic, uh, you could send it down there. Oh. So there was like the place was just. There are just so many iguanas, and uh, they didn't like mess with you or anything, so it was fine. But it was weird. I didn't like the it. second thing is, I've actually seen an iguana fall out of a tree. What? Uh, of course you. Of course that was in uh, Tamarindo in Costa Rica, and it sure as hell wasn't forty degrees. It was like ninety five, <gasps> and the place we were staying, there was all these like lounge chairs out, and everybody in like these rows, everybody's just kind of hanging out in the shade actually because it was so freaking hot. And then there's like this little, you could hear something crashing in the trees. And I turn around to see falling about like 10 feet away, <laughs> this big iguana. It was a good size. Iguana. It was much more than eight pounds, I'm sure. And it landed right next to this English guy who was drinking a cocktail. And boy, was he shaken up. <laughs> so I went over and talked to him about it for a couple of minutes. Uh, but that was not what he was expecting. But the thing like landed, I was like, my God, it must be dead. But no, it's an iguana. It doesn't like move super quickly. They, in, oh in the no, best of times. they move no, fast, they do. Toby. Holy oh, crap. They do. Have you ever seen one start running? Well, if, yes. they're, going, if they're going after or running oh, for yes. something. But, it, but in this situation, it just kind of looked around and just kind of wandered off. So I, I'm, of, I'm of two minds about iguanas because I, I had a pet iguana when I was in high school that I loved. That was very sweet. You know, by the way, iguanas are vegetarians. They are sweet. It's like in the lizard kingdom, you have like your bearded dragons mm -hmm. and your whatever, and you have your iguanas, like the pet lizard like world. Iguanas are sweet. They can be very tame. They can be very wonderful. And I've always had a very positive feelings about iguanas. Until last year when I took my two kids to Isla Mujeres in Mexico and we found ourselves at like a little like snorkel spot in the middle of iguana mating season oh. and found ourselves like in the middle of like legit iguana fights where like two iguanas would come at each other on my chair where I oh. was sitting, but Damn. right behind my head. Damn. So I don't know how I'd feel if they just fell out of the sky. I got to tell you, we live in New Hampshire. Ice falls out of the sky. Pellets fall out of the sky. All sorts of like horrible frozen things fall out of the sky. I'm psyched we live north of Iguanas falling out of the sky. What about you, Kevin? Well, I just think about all those people killed by falling coconuts. <laughs> and uh, think about there might be worse ways to go. <laughs> all right. We should probably end on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, we have cat dogs. So we have Cindy Mathis is nominating Penny, Shorty, and Sookie for cat dogs of the week. So it, cat starts, dogs. it starts as a sad story and then it gets happy, just to preface. Um, back in July, my parents' house burned and we lost my oh. dog, Sookie. Oh, uh, my Sookie. parents mm. and Shorty, their dog, stayed with her for four plus months. And then Penny, a new dog, entered their lives in the end of September, immediately became part of their family. Penny is very happy. And so the question is, who rescued who? And so I'm looking at this picture of Penny 
now hanging out with Shorty, and I'm thinking, Kevin and Rebecca, it's time for a new dog. I don't care if it sheds hair. I want the corgi. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so, you, Laura Bricker. of the week. I love the... Anyway, so yes, I did. these dogs are very cute, but uh, R.I.P. Sookie. Kevin, can you do your Anyone Sookie? who follows me on social Sookie. media will know Sookie, I'm sorry I will not apologize for my sweaty dog. Good, Sookie, I will not apologize for not letting my wife get a corgi. That dog decided he wanted to pee on the carpet. I could not stop him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to pitch to you their cats, dogs, uh, iguanas to be cat of the week on this podcast. How can they reach you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And it's going to have to be a pretty good iguana. I'm just saying. <laughs> and Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you online, perhaps on Twitter. How can they find you? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Felina, folks want to tweet to you and say to you, hey, Kevin, tell Rebecca if she wants to get another dog, she can get any kind of dog she wants because she works really hard and loves you a lot. And you should just say yes. How can they find you on Twitter? I've discontinued my account. <laughs> but you are at... Kevin P. Flynn. No, I'm not. For the record. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you very strenuously to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast. Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. New episode is out right now. Check it out for just six bucks a month on Patreon. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoy. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stan Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we often see Jason Bateman hanging out when he's actually on tape doing something else somewhere else entirely. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I'm working on a theme song for future Henry. What has it got? To the tune of Sister Christian. <laughs> Future Henry, you're the only one <laughs> who's gonna edit in. <laughs> wow. Taking Toby. out the ums. <laughs> there you go. Now don't sound so dumb. <laughs> Crime Media. Media.